0: Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 8 of the podcast, and we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward finishes unpacking chapter 2, focusing on verses 13 through 25. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, We would like to say thank you for listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast and we pray you are blessed by what you hear each week. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out previous episodes to get caught up to speed with the study. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward.
1: Well, before we uh, get into our study, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here safely. We thank you for the privilege and freedom we have to study your word. There's a lot of folks that don't have that freedom. We pray that you would bless our time together, that you would uh, enliven the scriptures, that you would not only help us to see what you want to communicate to the world and to us, but also how we can put what we learn into practice. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's uh, do a little review. Remember why did John write the gospel as he wrote? Remember in John chapter 20, we find the purpose of the gospel. He wrote the gospel so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, and that believing in him, you will have eternal life. At the heart and core of life's meaning and purpose is having a personal relationship with the living God, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who made us in his image, and the one who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God, that is unpacked throughout John's gospel, the 21 chapters of John. And it is brought forth at the very beginning in chapter 1. Remember, John said these signs have been presented. These signs, there's seven main signs, have been included so that you may know who Jesus is. The sign points to the reality of who he is. And so in chapter 1, we saw at the very beginning, the first 18 verses, that Jesus has set forth as the Word of God, the Word who was with God, and the Word who was God. Jesus is set forth as the light who enlightens all men. Jesus is the one in whom is life, and that through whom nothing that has been created has been created, has been made. It is John the Baptist who testified to Jesus saying that there is one greater than myself who is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs on his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And it is this word who has become flesh. If the law was given through Moses, grace and truth have been revealed in the person of the son who is in the bosom of the father. No one has seen the father It is the Son who has explained Him. It is the Son who has made Him known. And so that's the recap of the first 18 verses. Jesus is God. He's also the Son of God. He's in relationship with the Father. It is through Him that we have eternal life. In fact, I forgot to mention in John 1, 12, but as many as received Him, it's either verse 12 or 13, To them, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so that word believe, it's the first time it's used, it's verse 12, in John's gospel. And then you'll see it's used then 97 more times throughout the scriptures. And that belief is not merely an intellectual assent. That belief is something that puts itself in trust because if you trust in something, then your life will follow as a result of that trust. So if I trust in money, then my life will show that trust. If I trust in other people, I'll show that by how I act towards them. If I trust in Almighty God, if I trust in Jesus, then that will be reflected in how I live my life. Am I truly following him? And so we then looked after that section. We went into the testimony of John the Baptist and the testimony of his disciples. Remember last week? What, what, what were some of the key words that Jesus said? He said, Follow me. He didn't say, Follow religion. He didn't say, Follow Moses. He didn't say, Follow the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, Follow the temple. He said, Follow me. It's a person. Now, you've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. In fact, I'm going to. I'm preaching on a subject matter on Sunday where I will repeat this, but it's important for all of us to remember. And that is that the Christian faith is not primarily a cause. It does include a cause. That's the kingdom of God. But it's not primarily a cause. You could say it is the kingdom, right? But ultimately, the kingdom reflects where the king is. Remember, the kingdom means the king's domain. So the Christian faith isn't primarily a cause. It's not primarily a code. The Ten Commandments, that's a code of ethical behavior. Certainly Jesus said, when it pertained to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it is not primarily a code. It involves a code, but it's not primarily a code. The Christian faith is not only not just a cause, or a code, it's not merely a creed. Now, we say the creed. The creed's important. What we believe. But it's not primarily a creed. And the Christian faith is not primarily the church. The church is important. We're all to be part of the church. We are the body of Christ. But we don't follow the church. The Christian faith is all about Christ. It's a person. And yet... We are able to enter into relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ by simply receiving him, but we don't do it by ourselves. We are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the corporate community. It's not an individual, just me and God. And so if you notice, when Jesus called the disciples, he called them together, not just one, but together. And so at the end of John chapter 1, we saw the five disciples that Jesus Pauls, James and John, Peter and Andrew, and Nathaniel or Bartholomew. And John is writing the gospel. He is identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he writes in such a way that he highlights personal details that no one would know and no one would care to include in an account unless they were there in person. So he writes that the time that he and Andrew go to be with Jesus and spend time with Jesus, it's at 10 a.m. in the morning. At the wedding of Cana, he gives us the details of what transpired. And so, Last week we wrapped up chapter 1 and then we entered into chapter 2 and that's where I'd like us to continue now. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2 as we briefly review his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, but then go into the cleansing of the temple. Remember the first miracle was a wedding. It affirms holy matrimony. The wine points us to Passover, the celebration of the New Covenant, Jesus' blood for us. It represents the joy of the Lord. It represents that Jesus is concerned with the details of life, and yet he told his mom, this isn't my primary responsibility. My primary responsibility is not simply meeting the needs, the physical needs of people, which wine would be doing for the guests. My primary responsibility is to die and rise again. And so we have this first miracle at a wedding in Cana, Galilee. And then we pick it up, verse 13. Is everyone there? Verse 13, chapter 2. Now, what's fascinating about John's gospel, unlike the others, remember, is most of it focuses on Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Now, the first sign was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's significant because most likely that wedding was a family relation to Jesus' family. The, the disciples were from Galilee. Jesus grew up in Galilee. But John focuses most of his time in Jerusalem. And so while the first wedding, you'll see up there where it says Cana. Do you see Cana up in Galilee, the blue-gray part there? Go all the way down. John now takes us to Jerusalem, and John writes that, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, why would it say went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover? Because Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than Galilee. Jerusalem was the capital. And every year, Jews would be required to go to Jerusalem for sacrifice. And the, the greatest feast was the Feast of Passover that celebrated when God passed over the firstborn, when he sent the angel of death and spared the Hebrews because of the blood of the Passover lamb, and then he delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. So it's the most important feast. And Jesus, as a faithful Jew, is going during Passover to the temple for sacrifice. And then we read that something happens. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So why were these people selling oxen and sheep and doves? Well, because the feast of the Passover was so important, you'd have Jews from all over the Roman Empire coming to Jerusalem, not just the Jews in the area of Galilee and Judea and Samaria, but all over the empire. And you were supposed to have an animal to sacrifice. Well, if you're traveling a long distance, it's kind of hard to bring along a cow or an oxen or a sheep and a dove. Are you kidding? And so there would be provision for people to buy those animals there. On top of that, you'd have to exchange your money because your currency had to be converted to Jewish currency in order to pay the temple tax. So what do you think happened? That happens, we see, even in our nation, for example, when there is a hurricane or a disruption of uh, fuel, what do people like to do? Or water? They jack up the prices. And that's exactly what the merchants were doing. They saw this as an opportune time to jack up the prices. And then in addition to jacking up the prices, if you're a currency converter, you can play games with the money. And so they were ripping people off. Worse, they could have been doing this outside of the temple, away from the temple courts. But instead, they brought all of this business into the outer courts of the temple. Now, when I was preparing for this study, all right, this is a picture of Herod's temple. Now, can everyone see that? Now, to the right side, you see where it says Gentiles' courtyard. If you were a Gentile, even if you were a Gentile proselyte, that is someone who converted to Judaism, you could not go, you could could not get past the gate, the beautiful gate. You see that? You could not get through there. In fact, the Jews would put a sign up that says, if you're a Gentile, even if you're a follower of Yahweh, if you're a Gentile, you are guilty of death. You are liable to be stoned. So the Gentiles, coming for prayers, would have to do all their worship and praying outside in that courtyard. Then when you would go through the beautiful gate, which was made of Corinthian brass... And it was, it was very ornate and it was so heavy that in order to open that gate, you needed 20 men. And so you would open that gate and you would go into the woman's courtyard. The courtyard of the women. Now the women could not go beyond their c- courtyard unless they were to, coming to sacrifice an animal. That would be the only uh, reason for a woman to be allowed beyond the courtyard of the woman. So you had these two courtyards, the courtyard of the Gentiles and the courtyard of the women. Now, in my preparation for this study, as I was doing further research, most of the commentaries that I looked at said that the merchandise, or the merchandise, the, um, the money and the, and the animals were, were being sold in the court of the Gentiles. Some said that they were actually maybe in the woman's courtyard. Either way, that stuff has no business being there. So the issue is not so much that they were selling and buying and exchanging money. That was a service. The issue and the reason why we're going to see Jesus got so upset was A, they were doing it within the confines of worship and B, they were ripping people off, corruption so it'd be kind of like here in this church, if we were selling stuff in the corner there, right? Just, you know, so that, you know, when you're going up for communion or whatever, hey, don't forget to buy or whatever, do whatever you're, you know. And and two as an affront. Remember the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles. Even though Gentiles could become Jewish, they looked down upon the Gentiles. So it was a smack in the face to Gentiles, the Gentile believers, to have all this commerce going on in their courtyard. And certainly if it was in the courtyard of the women, it would be an affront to the women too. I don't, that's again, most of them said it was actually in the courtyard of the Gentiles. I I don't see them, but who knows? They may have, they may have infiltrated the courtyard of the women too. And so that sets the stage for how Jesus responds. Let's look. Verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves. Now doves were there for those who were poor, who couldn't afford a larger animal for sacrifice. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, notice that Jesus calls the temple his father's house. So what does that highlight? The fact that he is the son of God, that he has a special relationship with the father. And what Jesus demonstrates as the disciples, as the apostle John quotes from Psalm 69, zeal for uh, my house will consume me, or for your house will consume me. That's from uh, Psalm 69. And I want you now to keep your finger here and now turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 was written by David and it expressed his zeal for the Lord and God's ways in the face of persecution. But Psalm 69 is also considered a messianic, some. In other words, it foreshadows, it points to some things that will happen in Christ's life. Now, they quoted verse 9. You see verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the fact that Jesus calls the temple his father's house, and that Jesus is first and foremost concerned about the holiness and worship of the Lord, and of true righteousness, he rebukes the corruption of of the religious at that time, and just moral corruption, it highlights His divine nature. But notice in Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4, the prayer, "'Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God.' It almost echoes Psalm, the, the Psalm that Jesus prays from the cross, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 4 Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Remember, Jesus was innocent. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my en- enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Right? Now I want you to look at verse eight. "I have become a stranger from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Did you catch that? He was rejected by his own, right? His own did not receive him. But do you remember last week how we, we saw from John's gospel that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection? Do you see how that is being echoed right in the psalm, written a thousand years before? His brothers even rejected him. And then I want you to go to verse twenty-one. Well, verse twenty. It's the same theme. Reproach has broken my heart, and I'm so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave also me gall or vinegar for my—I'm sorry—gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It's exactly what they gave Jesus on the cross. Now let's turn back to uh, John chapter 2. Then the, the Jews then said to him, and the Jews would be those in authority, and probably some of the merchants, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now they're upset. Who does he think he is? And so to kind of test him, they say, hey, what miracle are you going to be performing? Remember, he's already been... Uh, doing miracles. And they're asking him for another one, but the sign should have been the fact that he was calling them to righteousness. That he was highlighting that what they're doing, he was exposing their hypocrisy and their corruption. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years. And actually it was still being built. It wasn't completed until... 65 AD. And then, isn't it interesting? It's completed in 65 AD. And then a year later, the Romans invade Jerusalem or Judea and begin the campaign. And it's finally destroyed in 70 AD. It took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture And the word which Jesus had spoken. Oh, there's so much there. First of all, Jesus is saying that the temple is not what is most important. That is not the means of salvation for the world. The Jews thought that. My body. What I have done and give for the world is the means of salvation. More important, Jesus is our temple. We don't need... I mean, these, these buildings are just for our protection. These buildings are just for a way of, of a focal point for our worship. But they're never to be equal or supersede the living God. As we read from Hebrews this past Sunday, Jesus is the builder of all things. He is not the building. He's the builder. He is the temple. But then notice too... His disciples, remember He said this, they believed the Scripture. Remember, whenever we see the word Scripture in the Bible, that's a reference to the Law and the Prophets, our Old Testament. But notice what is being said here. They believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had spoken. So basically, and this stands to reason, the Scriptures, the Old Tes- our Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, were held by the Jews to be inspired by God from God, God's Word. And so what John and the disciples are saying is that Jesus' Word is the same as God's Word. Our New Testament is all either Jesus' Word or words that confirm and or explain Jesus' Word. Now, what's interesting is the cleansing of the temple in John's Gospel, comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I don't know if you remember or not, but the cleansing of the temple by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, comes at the end. Do you remember that? It comes at the beginning of Holy Week. So it has led some scholars to conclude that this is the same event in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that John, for whatever reason, moved the event from the end of Jesus' ministry to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So, or it would mean that the synoptics got it wrong. But that's fairly highly unlikely. I don't believe John moved it for literary reasons, because it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would he put it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry if it didn't really happen. Remember, he was an eyewitness. What I believe, as do other scholars believe, is that there were two cleansings of the temple. Now, why would I believe this? I believe this for two main reasons. And we're going to see. A, there's actually differences in what some of what happened and what Jesus said between the two cleansings. And B, it would stand to reason that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, would clean out the temple and give people an opportunity to respond and follow through. And to show how the hearts of the Jewish leadership had not changed. That they were still doing the same thing. He would go in a second and final time and chase them out. And then that would actually incite them at that point to further make their plans to kill Jesus, which they did. They murdered him only a few days later, right? Doesn't that make sense? You think about it. Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. They probably looked at Jesus and said, who does this guy think he is coming in again? Now, we're going to see the differences between the two accounts. What's fascinating is in this account, the first one, Jesus identifies the temple as my father's house. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he calls it his house, my house. That's very powerful. Because... What that is saying is that Jesus is identifying him as as God. Now, John's gospel is known for highlighting Jesus' divine nature even more explicitly than the synoptics. And yet, here in the synoptics, we're going to see Jesus identifies the temple as his house. So I want you now to turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Now remember, this is during the triumphal entry. Into Jerusalem, Holy Week. Notice what it says in verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now what's interesting in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's no mention of the oxen and the uh, sheep. Verse 17, and he began to teach and to say to them. And there's also no mention of teaching in John. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And then we read in verse 18, which we did not read in John's gospel, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, we're not going to look at Matthew's account and Luke's because they pretty much say the same thing. My house. And it talks about obviously again Jesus overturning the money and all that and the doves. But it makes perfect sense to me that there were two cleansings of the temple. So let's now go back to John chapter 2, and let's continue. Moving forward to see what happens after uh, Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs. Remember, that's another term for miracle, which he was doing. And so we know that he was healing people. He was impacting everyone around him. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the third example of highlighting Jesus' divine nature in the passage we just read. Remember, the first example was his zeal for God's holiness, his Father's house. The second was the fact that he is going to die Destroy this temple, his body, and in three days I will raise it up. The resurrection. And finally, the third is that Jesus knows our thoughts and intentions. He knows the heart and motivations of mankind. And he wasn't entrusting himself. He wasn't trusting all these people who said, I believe because they weren't believing with the right motives. They were simply believing. And we're going to see this theme go throughout John that many believed in him because of what he was doing for them rather than for who he really was. Now, certainly some of these people who didn't really believe in him seriously may, not, may eventually believed in him seriously. We're going to see in just a moment Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, one of the Sanhedrin, a man very much respected, wasn't fully trusting the Lord at the, at the beginning, but by the end, he is a true follower of Jesus. But the point here is that many were believing Jesus, not because of who he is, but simply because of what he could do for them, and that Jesus knows the heart of man because he is the divine creator.
0: You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook... Head over to Facebook.com slash Transforming Lives Together Podcast. Again, that's Facebook.com slash Transforming Lives Together Podcast, and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Peter's first letter Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God bless.